episode 341, How to Cut Administrative Waste and Attract and Retain Doctors and Nurses. Today, I speak with Gary Campbell. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. First, let's talk about reducing administrative waste in the U.S. healthcare system. There was a pretty famous 2019 study by Schrank et al. that estimated about 25% of the 3.6 trillion the U.S. spends on healthcare annually is potentially wasteful. This is each person spending $2,500 unnecessarily. Robert Kotcher wrote a really interesting article about getting rid of administrative waste and inefficiencies, and he said that it is the, in quotes, safest form of healthcare cost savings. Virtually no one argues that administrative costs should remain high. Reducing administrative waste should be the high priority because everyone, including patients and clinicians, would benefit from lower healthcare costs. End quote. In my mind, everyone means payers, policymakers, and also providers who are or want to take some accountability for the total cost of care here. To talk about the possibilities, I have the perfect guest, Gary Campbell, who is the CEO of Johnson Health Center, which is an FQHC, a federally qualified health center in Lynchburg, Virginia. Why is the CEO of an FQHC a great person to talk about cutting out administrative waste with? Well, first of all, the patient population is what many would consider challenging at an FQHC. Second, they really have to cut out as much waste as possible because there is zero potential to, you know, cost shift. They do not have the option to charge their commercial lives four times Medicare or whatever and effectively cost shift the impact of inefficiencies. There basically are no commercial lives. You either figure out how to be efficient or the patient population does not get care. As Gary and I were talking, however, it became clear that when you cut out administrative waste, you wind up actually with the potential to become a great place to work. One reason for this just has to do with the process of cutting out waste, which requires culture and process. And a byproduct of a great culture and a great process means a great place to work. You might be thinking, as I was thinking, that this show, which is supposed to be about cutting administrative waste, is going to be all about how to do lean and Six Sigma and pretty much go peak MBA. Spoiler alert, it's not. When I asked Gary how to be operationally efficient, it all ladders up to organizational leadership, leaders who commit to putting patients first, to have core values with the expectation to actually achieve them for reals, not just in the marketing. Because without effective, accountable, committed leadership, patient first, lowering the cost of care, removing administrative waste, it ain't going to happen. Leaders should be visible, have a vision, a strategic plan, project plans, and be inspirational. They also need to not be afraid to move along, as they say, people who are pulling the team down and holding it back. Maybe even if a short-term revenue hit will transpire. Before we get started here, let's talk about FQHCs for a sec, just in case you're unfamiliar. Besides the acronym giving me fits of dyslexia, my brain always wants to invert the letters, so I have a post-it note here and I'm staring at it, so hopefully I'll be able to keep this straight. FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, are usually nonprofits that are oriented to take care of the underserved. Today, they serve upwards of 30 million people in the United States, and that's a growing number. There's something like 1,500 of them across all 50 states. They're federally funded. They are a safety net, really, for individuals out there who may not be able to access care anywhere else. There's 
generally bipartisan support for FQHCs and often a real purpose and passion to really care for people regardless of their ability to pay. They also tend to offer a lot of resources under one roof, you know, medical care, dental care, other things, mental health care, which can add substantially to the operational complexity. Gary Campbell, my guest today, as I said, is the CEO of an FQHC. Gary has a procurement and operations background, and this background informs how he approaches leadership and care delivery in ways that I find inspirational, and I hope that you do too. Some of the conversation that we had today reminded me of the interview with Tony DeJoya in episode 332. So if you want to dig further into this topic, go back and listen to that episode, link in the show notes. That interview is very specifically about how to create a patient-centric value system, which Dr. DeJoya says should be the new OS for healthcare delivery. During the show, I also mentioned my conversation with Jerry Durham. That's episode 297, where we talk about streamlining the front desk. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Gary Campbell, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me, Stacey. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you here. There's no opportunity to cost shift for inefficiencies between the commercially insured patient population and then the uninsured and Medicaid patient population in a federally qualified health center. No, you can't. We cannot refuse access to care for anyone, and we do not. I'm talking about financials here, but at Mm -hmm. the same time, there are other consequences to inefficiencies besides just running out of money and then not being able to serve the patient population that you're trying to serve. If a facility or care delivery entity is running pretty inefficiently, what winds up happening? Well, that's a great question because typically the first thing somebody would want to do is throw a body at it or throw two bodies at it. That always tends to be the first response for if there's workflow inefficiencies that are happening within a clinic or one of our practice sites. And it's always, hey, we had this person doing this or we could get one more resource here. But have you workflowed out? Have you applied a Six Sigma approach to it and make and make certain that you're running it from a lean perspective? You can overstaff yourself in a way that uh, your cost per patient goes way up and then that draws your margins at the very bottom line much closer together. You really have to look at things in greater detail and it's a broader spectrum than just, you know, adding costs or adding technologies or adding, you know, more people to the picture. It's funny because a lot of times if you say take a lean approach or take a Six Sigma approach, you have clinicians across the country feeling like this is an excuse to cut staff beyond which what is and make their their lives miserable, basically, and, and increase patient loads untenably, for example. So maybe you want to just drill into a little bit. We're kind of using the Six Sigma as a sort of broad stroke here. But what are the highest level things that are required so that patients receive the best care, but doing it in a financially responsible way? One of the things that we're doing here, and we're doing it right now, as a matter of fact, we just put the f- finishing touches on our three-year strategic plan. And one of them is re-engineering our care teams in a practice transformation format. And that's all part of your culture. When you have these discussions, you got to make certain that you're including the very people who are doing the work. This is where a lot of times your, your providers, especially your physicians, your uh, nurse practitioners and PAs, and you see this in a lot of places. It's you know, the administration made this decision, but they didn't include us in the conversation. We work very hard here not to have that be the discussion. You know, we're not perfect, but in most cases, especially as it comes to workflows and looking at leaning out how, how the patient gets from, from the very first call they make into your, 
into your center when they walk in the door, how they're checked in, what's the process for getting to the back? Do we have standardized workflows? Do we have uh, you know all our nurse operations? And the nurses are linchpins to everything because you think about the your nurses, they're in the middle of it all from the time that patient is done at the front to the time that patient walks out at the very end. So are there standardized procedures with how the nurses are performing? And a lot of times providers or physicians, I use the word providers because I'm including them all, have preferences for how they want to see you know, their patients come in. Some providers want to do more than maybe other providers do. But what's, where some things can get backed up is that these are a lot of things that the nurses could be doing. So we look at everything and we involve those providers, we involve nurses in those discussions to create standards. And that's, again, what we're in the middle of now is re-engineering our care team process. The technology is a big part of it, too. Half of our staff want to use dictation software. The other half says we don't want to touch it. But at some point, we've got to come to some decisions on how we're going to be you know, standardized things so it makes it easier my vision and goal at this health center is I want the patients to have the best experience, but I also want our staff to have the best experience in how we take care of people. And how does standardizing in the ways that you just talked about, you know, standardizing the technology, standardizing patient flow, how does that ladder up to the best experience that patients can possibly have? Because there's a lot of people that would say standardizing care, you know, you've got to treat the patient in front of you, not the average patient, for example. How does standardizing care actually create more personalized care, potentially? Well, and I can only speak to what we're doing here. We're set up on 15-minute and 30-minute visits for our physicians and APPs. My goal has always been I want our providers to spend more face time with our patients. So what does that look like? From a standardization of care perspective, we've worked hard on standing orders for the nurse team. We've worked hard on what can be entered prior to the patient getting in the room. As much as we like to believe the patient loves to see everybody when they get here, that patient's here to see the provider. So the optimal goal is that patient gets to spend as much time with the provider as that patient, that visit time will allow. So from a standardization perspective, I have nine locations that I, that I run. I want the exact process done from the time that patient calls to the time that patient walks out the door from front to back. Now, depending on the clinical chronic conditions, depending on the complexity of the patient needs, they have autonomy in how that can look. But if we're looking at 80% of the workflows and how patients come and go, that's where I look at standards. And the other piece of this is our clinical teams see that we care and they know we're trying to make life easier for them. And so we're getting a lot of cooperation around that. That's what I consider standardization of care as it relates to just the, the processes. What's necessary to pull off some of the things that we're just talking about here? Well, the first thing you got to have is a vision. If you don't have a vision for where you want to be, two and three years down the road, you're struggling because then you're going to be stuck in the day-to-day and you're going to be in the grind. And it's difficult to motivate a team behind purpose and passion if they can't see where you're going. One of the things we've always talked about here is, you know, I want everybody to understand what, you know, what is their why? You know, why do you do what you do? I remember three years ago, we held an executive retreat and I asked that question. I asked it of my executive team. I said, what's your why? This was supposed to be a 15 minute exercise. And you would have been surprised at the number of people who had difficulties coming up with their why. We wound up going into the afternoon with this discussion because I was really determined we weren't going to move to the next level until our executive team knew what their why was. You have to be a visionary. You have to know where you want to be and you have to know how you're going to get there. But you have to know why you do this work. And you have to be able to convey that to the people who are going to help you get it done. 
that's the first piece. And that is going to help drive your workplace culture. So let's just make this a leadership objective. The leadership team is are really the ones that have to sit down and make sure that there's a vision and purpose for the organization, but then also each individual working there is aligned with that. If we're considering this the first step, then what's the next step? Well, I'm going to back up to 2014 when I took over this health center. At the time, our leadership team looked much different. At the time, the vision was we would become an employer of choice and we would do it under two years. Not everyone was aligned with that. And so when you assess your leadership team and you start digging into the purpose and the why that the existing team at the time had, and there's misalignment in their own value system, changes need to be made and changes were made. So once we got people who were aligned with that particular vision, we grew together and we've grown since then. When you came in, it sounds like you set the objective, become an employer of choice. And that's what certain people on the leadership team were not aligned with. Correct. It was a different culture. And I don't believe they thought we we had the particular staff to pull it off. And I don't think that, and, and frankly, me coming from you know the for-profit sector, working for global companies, I don't believe they thought that, that I had the type of experience to pull that off. At the end of the day, it's not so much the experience, it's just the passion and the ability to enable others to act and encourage people to want a better place to be. And so, you know, there were a lot of, you know, clearly hidden agendas. There were some things or some people who were not aligned there. They didn't want things to change. And that's anywhere you go. I mean, anytime you, and I tell you, any of the any listeners out there, that if you're new or you're coming into a role, or if you've been in a role for a long time, you have to always make sure you establish what you want to see. It definitely sounds like you came in, you took a look around and you realized to attain maybe your your longer term vision, you had to have really good people. Correct. So the mission was very dependent on the, the staff that was there. It definitely sounds like that is going to certainly permeate into the culture of the organization. That is true. And it, it's like anything else, you, you have to do it in steps and in phases. So when I mentioned the employer choice piece, you know, we went with the original employer choice certification that Joyce Joya and Roger Herman wrote the book on. We wanted our employees to, to rate what they perceived of leadership and how they felt about being here. And by the time we got there, we had scored some of the highest culture scores that they had seen. They'd done this for a long time. And there's been a lot of offshoots from that initial concept, you know, great places to work. There's a whole bunch of them now. But we picked that one because it, it really specifically spoke to leadership. Now, fast forward, you've built an employer choice culture. The work gets much harder because now you've established yourselves as this is where the bar is. And so as you add people to this bar, they don't know what it was like before. They know what it's like coming in. So, you know, you have to continually keep your leadership team engaged in the process, doing a lot of listening, being empathetic, helping develop their own staff, succession planning for their own positions, but being intentional about everything. We use a lot of coaching and uh, mentoring here at this health center. I'm very adamant about our executive team down through our senior leadership team to be visible with their people. And, you know, coming off of a pandemic or still really in a pandemic, that means you do it virtually if you have to, but you see your people, you stay engaged with your people. You know, it goes, I go back to workplace culture. If you don't keep a finger on the pulse and keep active with what's happening in your culture, it will manage you. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people know exactly what you're saying. And and as they say, culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? So if culture is the root cause of so many things, then obviously it's something that maybe people need to spend more time thinking about than it appears they often do. Agreed. And 
you know, asked me earlier about how I see healthcare in general. And I work with a lot of my CEO peers across the state and across the country. But we saw 2020, right? That exposed some areas of strength and some areas of opportunity for leaders. Some people, you know, may not have been as prepared as as they were hoping to be, because when you deal with a crisis like that, in terms of and we and healthcare is tough as it is. When you throw, you know, a crisis at as we experienced in 2020, that really reveals some character in terms of how you're going to respond to that. I use culture all the time because if you go back to your culture and how you have prepared your culture and and been constantly engaged with it from the leadership team all the way down, then you can handle things like that. You can handle them better, I should say. Your position better. Okay, so we've got vision, we've got culture. You know, one of the things that you've said is a lot of times overhead can be self-inflicted, which I thought was a really interesting comment. How do we get from culture to ensuring that we have processes and procedures which help make any given organization a great place to work? Because a, a place, even if it had the best culture in the world, if it had horrible processes and procedures that everybody hated, then obviously it's not going to be a great place to work. Correct. I think you hit it right on the head. Those two go hand in hand. If if you think about what impacts someone's wanting to be here, wanting to you know, practice medicine here, how are procedures set up? How are the workflows set up? Does it make my world easier? Do I go home pulling, pulling my hair out at nights? So if you have the expertise in-house, then you involve those clinicians. You constantly having conversations around it, whether you do it with your continuous improvement committee, uh, your quality committees, whether you're doing focus groups, if you just tackle one practice location at a time, I like to look at it from the viewpoint, you have to take a step back and take two steps forward. You may have to forego some revenue for a short period of time to slow the processes down to see where you have some opportunity to improve them. Could you give an example of a case where revenue took a hit in the short term in pursuit of a longer term goal? We don't have any major glaring examples of that, but what we have done here is we've committed to pulling providers off of the floor to get involved in projects. At the end of the day, you know, reimbursements are tied to the, to the physician visits of how many patients we get to see and how well we take care of them. So if we're looking at a, at a major project, this care team reengineering process is a pretty major project. What that's going to mean is we're going to have to pull practicing clinicians off the floor for half a day at a time so that we can work on, you know, first of all, getting their input. But secondly, once we have their input and once we've built some some pilots around them, then if we're tying technology to this, if we're integrating with our in-house pharmacies or our, our mental health team, we have a dental practice as well. So how are we integrating all these services together? So who all has to come off the floor to help us build these things out? You're foregoing revenue for that. But the goal there is you're going to optimize it on the back end. The other thing we just recently did is we created a, an additional layer of leadership between our medical director and the provider staff. We now have associate directors at our pediatric practice and also in our adult family medicine practice. And we gave each one of them an administrative day as well because they are able to really look at this thing from a boots on the ground perspective and help give us some opportunity to make improvements, but it also gives their peers and people who are practicing medicine the opportunity for direct and quick feedback. Again, you forego a little bit of the of the revenues on one side with the hopes that you, number one, you retain staff this way too, because if there's more opportunity to provide feedback and, and to be able to solicit input, in a lot of cases, that's what especially our provider population is looking for. So that's what we do here. And you know, it hasn't hurt us. At the end of the day, it's 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 been a big benefit for us. 
Like a lot of this is on leadership's shoulders. It definitely sounds like like C-suite level. For example, vision across the entire organization, the culture that is established and the emphasis on it. And then operationally, many complaints rise up from, yeah, I sat on all these committees and I made all these recommendations and then nothing happened. Like that's almost worse than not having the meeting to begin with because everybody feels like not only did nothing change, but I wasted a ton of my time. So operationally, there definitely also seems to be aspects here that, again, ladder up to leadership, which reminds me of, you know, Dr. Robert Pearl, either in his first book or his second one and others have said early and often they don't teach leadership in most medical schools. So it's super hard for doctors a lot of times to lead teams or maybe necessarily understand what needs to happen in order for change to happen. So a lot of times they'll tend to micromanage and think they have to do everything themselves solo because if you aren't confident in your ability to rely on others to do really, really important things and we've got patient lives at stake, so the stakes are super high here, then you wind up not necessarily with the strong organizational aspects that you're talking about here. You're right. One of the things that you mentioned, and Dr. Pearl says what we all know, and physicians will tell you the same thing. They don't get the types of leadership training. They're busy. I mean, most of the folks in the that go through the their medical school, the residency, and the work that's all part of that, that's a lot. And I've come to appreciate what my clinical peers go through, and I would encourage anyone who's listening who's in an administrative role, administrative leadership role, is get to know, I mean, truly get to know these clinicians on a, on a level that is authentic so that they, you know, I don't call it artificial authenticity, but get to know them sincerely. That's a big part of it. The other piece is have some ability to educate them and give them, if it's just nothing more than the methodology of what your system subscribes to, and educate them yourself. One of the things we've launched here, it starts October 20th, is a leadership academy with 19 courses, 13 of which are core, and they're leadership oriented. And we're enrolling our providers in this program and a host of those classes because they didn't get this. And there's a lot that are excited about it. We consider that big. As we talk about looking over the horizon for the next few years, we got to do that. That's what in healthcare, if you go back and read some of Dr. Pearl's work, that's precisely what he's speaking to. So it is incumbent on us to listen and do those kind of things. I think it definitely takes some humility on both sides is what I'm hearing. We have administrators who often get looked down upon. Oh my God, it's those MBAs running around doing things. But the science of leadership and management is actually a a thing. But at the same time, obviously we've got clinicians who have unimpeachable knowledge of what it takes to actually care for patients. That also needs to be given the greatest respect. It sounds like in a best case scenario, we've got everyone understanding and appreciating each other's unique skill sets for sure, doing some cross-learning maybe so that everybody can even better understand and, and collaborate, it sounds like. That's a big part of it. Well, the other piece that I didn't really allude to is the core values. And you know, what I get to learn in, all, in a lot of my travels is a lot of institutions have um, core values, but nobody can really cite what they are. From a core values perspective, you can make every single decision from a leadership perspective, from a clinical perspective, from a lot of different perspectives on core values, whatever they are to you, whatever they are to your, your organization. We have made a commitment here and we live them in everything we do. That has helped a lot with our 
we look at leadership at all levels, clinical, administrative, operational, and we always start with those values. We built them 10 years ago. We built them with our staff. They're the ones that created them. And we still have those same values today. They're embedded in everything we do. So I just wanted to make sure I, I added that because we talked about passion, we talked about purpose, we talked about knowing your why, but all of that is underpinned with your values. Great. And I'll, I can ask you to maybe send over what your values are. We can put them in the show notes. I can do that. One thing I wanted to comment on too, Stacey, is that you mentioned earlier about when you, there's, a, there's change, there's committees, there's meetings that happen, and then all this work is done and nothing comes out of it. What we do here, and I learned this way back in, in other places, you have to project plan things out that you want. If you're serious, if people are meeting on something, you better have a project plan. You better have deliverables. You better have the dates. You better have who's responsible. And there better be an outcome. Because unless there's a project plan with an end date and an outcome associated with it, I don't want to see it. I don't want our people meeting on it. And it's a waste of time. So that does provide some credibility. When we involve people in teams here, they know something's going to come out of that. And that, again, seems to ladder up to leadership. If the C-suite is the one that is calling these meetings or it's the C-suite that's not sending a clear organizational message, like, hey, don't waste everybody's time with meeting fatigue, then you're going to have lots of meetings and and people checking boxes because they met about it, not because anything actionable actually happened. Yes. And we've all been through that. That we have. You know, so at the top of this conversation, you were talking about how you made it a goal to be an employer of choice. I could see that in a very competitive labor market that we're sitting in right now, and I'm assuming that if you work for an FQ, that you're not necessarily getting paid top dollar, and correct me if I'm wrong, how do you attract talent in that environment, in this environment? You've said all the all the right things. Thankfully, the dollars have come up some, but again, it's still a very difficult market, especially now. You have to create a value proposition especially in FQHC, or really, I would say any private practice that's that's outpatient-oriented because, you know, your primary care physicians and providers are really, they're the most difficult to find these days. Uh, and in nurses, that's another big challenge. I mean, that's become almost a greater challenge. So you have to focus on, if you, you can't pay the highest dollar, and there's a lot of places that really do struggle, if you can't pay those same dollars, you have to determine what that value proposition is. You know, what do people want? Is it your benefits? Is it the culture? Is it the work-life balance? Do you make certain that you put the employees first? So you have to look at every competitive angle you can when money is not going to be the top one. Well, I could see that maximizing FaceTime with patients, if you're a clinician who is really has a why of actually improving patient lives and Mm -hmm. patient outcomes, that that could be compelling if honestly that's their why. That's true. And that's why it's incumbent on us. That's part of the vision is to create that environment. I mean, we don't have a, you know, I've gotten to know a lot about this side of medicine since I've been in this role. And I know some systems are tougher than others. You know, we see a lot of patients here. I don't think that's any any secret for really any place that's that takes care of the kind of patients we take care of. But the vision here is to create a compelling employment opportunity for people so that they can do more of their why and really bring some of the joy back into the practice of medicine. I really do want that for our people. I've always wanted that for our people. We're going to work tirelessly until we get there. Well, speaking of the complete opposite end of the spectrum from a federally qualified health center, I'm talking about One Medical. It's interesting because they 
also don't necessarily pay their PCPs potentially as much as a PCP might make who's a servant of a health system trying to play the RVU game. Mm -hmm. What their value proposition is to PCPs is, again, it's the mission. It's the ability to spend time with patients. It's ability to feel like that the organization is in alignment with their values. Ideally, that's what we would like to have. In reality, PCPs do see a lot of patients and we have seen salaries for those physicians escalate. Really all the providers, health centers have had to get on a much more competitive level with the private practices. Hospital systems, it's a little bit different. We we even have a tough time with that here. But again, that's where the value proposition gets promoted. It's important for leaders of the health centers, FQs all over the country to recognize that whether if it's RVU-based or if it's value-based, you have to say two years ahead of where things are today. If you don't, you're going to be in reaction mode all the time. So we're constantly looking at ways to incentivize our providers, incentivize our staff to want to pick Johnson Health Center to continue with their career or start their career. And or if we're just talking about trying to rebalance the cost curve, something that you've said earlier, which is a lot of times if there's something wrong, leadership's first instinct is to throw a body at it. So you're paying a lot of people that maybe you could pay a fewer number of people more, for example, or reallocate people into in more productive ways. One of the things that is often cited as being really inefficient is I think they have, on average, there's four full-time employees per physician that's working on administrative tasks, like for billing, for example, and that ratio is increasing. Do you feel like that is potentially an area that could be streamlined for everyone's benefit? Yeah, it can be streamlined. What we're seeing, and it goes back to the complexities of healthcare in general. There's more being thrown at the clinicians as it relates to electronic medical records, what has to be entered, the data that has to be captured. So what has happened in healthcare is you have to have more support for that clinician just to get the work done and just to meet the requirements and some of the regulatory pieces and the payer pieces, going back to the efficiencies and how your your processes are, are oriented and making sure you don't have waste in the practice itself. But you you brought up a good point. You have to look at your administrative support staff and determine what are their flows. You know, I learned some of the Six Sigma concepts working as a head of procurement at Bear Corporation. You know, you know, that's some of the work we're going to do here after we're done with the clinical piece of it. So it is constantly having to look at these things and determining ways in which you could enrich your practice, but also making sure you're not overloaded in, you know, one area versus another because that's a cost item. Yeah, I had interviewed Jerry Durham on the show about making the front desk more efficient. And basically, if you do that, how many downstream, I'm going to say irritants, don't become issues for the clinicians downstream because they're handled upstream. What advice do you really have for individuals, executives who are in the care delivery business? Is there anything sort of overarchingly that you would tell them? First and foremost, be visible. And that is impossible to do with large systems or large practices as it relates to being on the floor or making rounds, although that doesn't preclude you from doing that at some point. But be visible with your staff. Be visible with your direct reports and your peers and make certain that if you're at the very highest level, don't isolate yourself from the external world either, because that's important. Now, COVID has exposed us to virtual platforms. We do biweekly town halls now, and that has gone a long way. You know, you hear the story, it can get lonely at the top. Well, it has really kind of closed us in some with, you know, everything moving predominantly to a virtual setting, but just be visible. That's 
probably the first and foremost thing I would recommend. Have a strategic plan, have a vision, make sure you you know where you're going and make sure that you're able to inspire that with the people that work with you and alongside you. Then don't be afraid to move people along that are pulling you down or pulling you back. So those are just some some real high-level takeaways. Gary, I know you do also some leadership coaching and training. Where can people find out more information about that? You can find out more at impact the number two lead lead.com. Impact to lead. The healthcare piece is I'm passionate about it. I do care about it because it's where my values are and that's really where, where my why is. Love to hear from you if you have questions or thoughts or comments. I'm always willing to learn more. Gary Campbell, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.